Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. I'm this week's host, Eddie Webb, and with me are Dixie Cochran. Hello there. And Matthew Dawkins. Hello. <laughs> Dang, you didn't you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> I was like, I'll try something, and then Matthew's just like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you and what have you done with Matthew Dawkins? It would have been more curious if I'd said, hey, that's a very American thing. Hey, yo. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's even more American, I think. But uh, yeah, British people don't tend to say, hey. It, it, it actually does sound wrong. really weird coming out of your mouth. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. Hey. I do remember, remember hiya um, a fair bit for my uh, English friends, but not hey. Yeah, I might write hi, but I very rarely say hi. Uh, you know, last week we were talking about. Uh, jokes with no payoff right right and it, why it feels like a, an era ago since we recorded that episode um <laughs> <laughs> have i ever told the two of you <laughs> oh, no. oh no have i ever told the two of you about brown paper pete no i don't think so okay well uh, it's a dusty high noon in the wild west and the sheriff walks himself in to the saloon. So squeaky, 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 as the doors, you know, go back and Oh forth. my god, okay. <laughs> and the usual bar flies are there, leaning over, uh, drinking their whatever they're drinking. And he says, I got a warrant here for the arrest of Brown Paper Pete. You'll have to excuse the accent, it's the best I can do. And the bartender says, What's it look like, sheriff? He says, well, brown paper Pete has a brown paper vest. He wears a brown paper hat and brown paper chaps, brown paper Stetson, brown paper gloves. He has a brown paper gun and brown paper boots. He has a brown paper shirt and a brown paper belt. He has a brown paper holster and brown paper spurs. And the bartender says, what's his crime, Sheriff? Rustling. Oh. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh my god, I love bad jokes so much. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I, I I am one of those people, like, I, I am genuinely delighted by a terrible pun. <laughs> and I hear, like, I will I will go and tell my boyfriend one and he'll, he'll, he'll groan and I'm like, what? I found that delightful. That was so funny. Like, <laughs> Have I ever told you about the uh, underdressed East German gunslinger? <laughs> no. no, please do. Uh, he's the fascist hun in the vest. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, for, for, for listeners who are listening after 1989, not all East Germans are fascists. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> or indeed communists. Uh, for, yeah, anyway, moving swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, I'm gonna collect myself. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you doing that? Um, today's topic is not horrible puns, although perhaps in future maybe we should think about possibly doing that. Just spending an hour sharing our worst possible jokes until people unsubscribe in a fit of peak. Um, but you know, today <laughs> we're actually talking about game design. Um, uh, uh, I invited uh, a few of our designers to get together um, and just dig into actually 
the, the craft of, of making games. Because we've talked a lot about specific games and specific designs, but I don't think we've ever really covered in depth just what it actually takes to make a game, uh, diving into things like um, game theory and how we choose mechanics and whatnot. So I thought it was it was worth the time to actually kind of spend a little bit of, of effort on that. So I invited uh, Daniel Lazan, Monica Specka, and Travis Legg to get together and just talk about D&D and Exalted and StoryPath and all sorts of other fun and interesting designs. And there are some puns in there too. So if, you, if, you're, if you're on this train, yes. it will continue through the station. <laughs> the pun train. So, so uh, we'll go ahead and go to the interview. Hello, I am here with my lovely, lovely uh, panelists, uh, uh, Danielle Lazon. Hello. Monica Specka. Hello. And Travis Legg. Hello. All of you have uh, been the, the podcast before, um, so we won't go into uh, your kind of background and whatnot, because instead I, what I want to do is I want to take this time to talk about actually game design. Uh, it's something we all do a lot of, and yet we all usually always end up talking about uh, the background and the world and the, the arts and whatnot. And those are all cool things, but we don't often get a chance to really just dig into what it's like to actually uh, uh, make the game or, or get involved with, with the crunch. And in fact, that leads me to my first question for all of you. Um, over the years, the industry has developed this designation of quote-unquote fluff, which is the setting material and the, the fiction and the like, versus quote-unquote crunch, which is the mechanical components of it. Is this a fair breakdown of game design? Is it Does it bother you? Do you have no problem with those terms? What are your oh thoughts God, on Eddie, fluff? You scratch? immediately hit a thing I have strong opinions about. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like I planned this. <laughs> Did you know I have strong opinions about this, or was this just a lucky guess? I suspect it. I suspect it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, sure, I'll open strong by saying I hate those terms, but I think the <laughs> breakdown is fine. Uh, I much prefer to refer to things as, like, lore or um, setting for, air mm. quotes, fluff, because I think the word fluff is diminutive and makes it sound like those things don't matter. Which, mm -hmm. as us as you know, game creators absolutely know that that is not the case. Like, lore, cool lore and cool settings are what draw people in. Um, and I'm I'm less offended by the word crunch, <laughs> um, but it does make me imagine like some sort of dice breakfast cereal whenever someone brings it up. Dice <laughs> uh, crunch. It gives you dice one dice six breakfast meals. <laughs> Oh my just, god. Just like polyhedrons, the breakfast cereal. <laughs> Gonna make this clatter great. Clatter clack clack crunch. <laughs> Platonic solids in every bite. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but like I do think the the breakdown, especially when we are considering like how we structure books and the way we consider the way we're shaping a game, especially because all of us are developers and that's like a, another thing that we think about. Um, mm -hmm. That like, and and even when as I'll get even higher concept, even as developers, when you are picking people to create your project, um, you mm -hmm. know you have people who are stronger at setting or storytelling advice 
um, or other sorts of lore details like history or whatnot who are really going to bring that to life. And you have other people who are really good at bringing the gameplay elements, the mechanics parts uh, to life as well. Um, and I think that divide is just fine. Like the ga- games mm-hmm. are sort of made up of those two things um, and they should inform each other because we're, we're here to create an experience and those two things should line up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my strong opinions. <laughs> I have, sense. I have less strong opinions <laughs> uh, specifically about those words. Um, I actually kind of like the word fluff uh, probably because like uh, like the word bisexual, it's the word I learned. Uh, and so it's the word I use. <laughs> uh, and I, I think that it is, I, I think I agree with you that, you know, it, it's an it's an okay distinction. I actually feel like it's, uh, <clears throat> I think having that strong of a distinction though between mechanical uh like oh what are the mechanics of this game and what are the what's the setting of this game uh actually in my opinion hinders some people's understanding of the fact that you don't need uh dice rolling to be a mechanic right and that mechanics mechanics are sometimes diegetic to the story itself Mm -hmm. um and so when people are developing narrative games and other people are like whoa it's a mechanicless game and i'm like that's not a thing if it's a game, right. it has mechanics. Like you can't; otherwise, it's just a story. Like, right. <laughs> right. So, um, but it does, I think, hinder some people's understanding uh, that you know when we say the word mechanic crunch, they're thinking dice rolling, right? Right. Because if you use the term crunch instead of mechanics or how to play the fucking game, <laughs> then you end up with. <laughs> This this divide between people who think that narrative games aren't really games uh, because they don't have crunch, they have mechanics. Uh, That's a so, really good point. I, I, my, so my opinion isn't necessarily that um, that it's bad to make that distinction, but I think that it is a far more nuanced distinction than just crunch and fluff. So much as uh, and and you know, when Monica says they have to inform each other, it's so important that they inform each other that I think making that divide is actually needs to be far more muddier than it actually is. Absolutely. Um, I know for me, um, uh, one of the things that I try to think about as I use fluff and crunch as adjectives rather than nouns, like this needs to be fluffier, this needs to be crunchier. Um, I find that's way more useful than just the kind of binary assumption of fluff and crunch, personally. Um, also, digression, uh, bisexual fluff is the name of my baby metal cover band. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Perfect. Anyway, Travis, what are your thoughts? Um, so I kind of uh, agree with uh, everything said so far, probably a little bit less passionately. <laughs> um, but... Uh, one of the things, though, where I think um, the distinction is uh, something to be aware of, and like Danielle said, something that can maybe stand to be a little bit muddier, is that um, when you're really crafting a good game design experience, a good gameplay experience, um, those two things should absolutely be um, intertwined. They should be 
almost indistinguishable, right? I mean, aside from like yeah. your your conceptual lore level, like when you boil it down to its like base base um, notions, the mechanics of your game should create the experience you want the players to have, um, and that's if you're not leaning into the fluff when you're figuring out the crunch, if you're not leaning into the lore when you're figuring out the mechanics, um, that's you know, you're, you're failing before you start. And I think that was, I, I learned that over 10 years of, um, you know, during the D, D20 system boom, trying to, you know, squeeze square pegs into round holes constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, D&D is a very good uh, game for kicking in monsters, or kicking, kicking in doors. Yeah, kicking in monsters. <laughs> Um, well, also kicking in monsters, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I saw nothing wrong with the thing you just said. <laughs> right, it's fair. Um, it's, good, it's good at both. Uh, you can kick in monsters and doors and take their stuff. Um, door stuff. You can also slay doors. I've robbed at least one door in a D&D game. Um, exactly. <laughs> that's, my, that's my favorite old school D&D derived stat is the, the kicking monsters stat and, and, yes. and looting doors. Exactly. You you pick its porthole. Oh, hey now. <laughs> but yes, um, aside from all of those things that you're doing, it does them well. Um, you know, it's designed to emulate that experience. Um, you know, Story Path is designed to emulate kind of a cinematic um, or episodic television style experience, and it does it very well. Um, where you, where I think a lot of game designers uh, run into problems, and I think it's because of the of this uh, delineation between um, fluff and crunch, or you know, lore mechanics, um, is not realizing how closely those have to be connected for the game to actually work um, in a fun way. You know, you can do anything with any game system. It's just a matter of does it do it well? Does it lend itself well? to it are you is the system getting in your way while you're doing it um and those are the things i think that you need to consider and why i think that you need to be acutely aware of how they interact with one another if that makes sense Uh, it totally makes sense to me at least uh am i allowed to shill for my own show that means yeah (laughs) yeah uh so uh the one of the most recent episodes um of my show bonus experience which is me and um our Onyx Path Freelancer and a very good friend of mine, uh, Ray Cole, um, sh- shooting the shit in a funny way, but about game design topics. Um, and we try to be educational and goofy, and it's a good time. But our one of our most recent shows was just titled Mechanics Are Inevitable, and it is a whole breakdown <laughs> on what Danielle said, where like all, all games have mechanics, period, uh, right. even if they don't involve dice. Um, and then also what Travis just said, where like all systems basically all systems are tools um and you have to understand the tool for the job you're trying to do um and we basically say the same thing that travis said we're like D is a tool for kicking in monsters and uh <laughs> if your game isn't about <laughs> kicking in monsters and looting doors uh then then maybe don't don't try to cram D into it um and we do a breakdown of a bunch of popular systems including story path and what it's good for uh and what it's not good for so you should go listen and to I that. Think, it's a good time. No, absolutely. Uh, um, and uh, I'll definitely I'll put a link to that in the show notes um, when we get to that, if you remind me to send me the episode link. I will do so. Um, but uh, uh, that actually leads to kind of another thing that, that's been on my mind lately is um, 
uh, one thing that you know, let's take as read the fact that you know mechanics are inevitable, and I think it's a good way of phrasing that. Um, so whether you have a rules like game or uh, a very kind of uh, a, a textured, nuanced mechanical system, um, that's going to shape how gameplay works. And sometimes it's going to it's going to be you're going to get gameplay is not going to work the way you tend to. The game mechanics are going to push you kind of in a direction that you don't necessarily intend the game to go um but the best mechanics i find are the ones that people claim are quote-unquote invisible or maybe get out of the way mechanics um where it's so aligned with gameplay that you don't even realize on some level it's a mechanic and uh the one that i i often go back to is um humanity in vampire the masquerade because it's so much in an idealized version of the game, the core of the gameplay, um, and that you're making in-character decisions based on this mechanical conceit. So the, the mechanic is encouraging you to play the game as it is designed. Um, do you think it's a fair statement that that's a, a sign of a, of a good mechanic? Or are there other metrics of mechanics that you also find that are, that are you go, wow, that's a really good mechanic? So... Um, this is something that I, I, I know you and I have talked about this some Eddie that I'm also mm -hmm. pretty passionate about this specific thing, which is, you know, designing your mechanics to support the gameplay, the, the experience you want to have at the table. Travis said that earlier, uh, and I was nodding vigorously, not like anybody could see that. Uh, <laughs> good audio quality there, Daniel. I, I, could, right? I, could yeah, yeah. I could feel it in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, but, you know, when I see a mechanic that's essentially saying, hey, I'm, uh, here I am, whatever it is, uh, it's, um, you know, the humanity mechanic or it's, uh, it's a fear mechanic in a, in a horror game that literally makes people afraid. Um, mm -hmm. what, you know, like a tension building mechanic, like dread where you're pulling literal Jenga tiles and you're like, oh shit, is it going to fall? And I'm actually building tension, but that's the mechanic of the game. And, ah, because mm -hmm. it creates this at the yeah. table, the, the, the experience you're trying to, to make. And I think mechanics that, um, all the best mechanics, in my opinion, are the ones that inform the player what the experience they're supposed to be having at the game is. Uh, another good mechanic that, may, as you were talking, it made me think about is in Bluebeard's Bride, there's a, a move uh, that you can do. And what and the move is literally, if if you're, you know, the, the groundskeeper and you describe something that is horrifying and the player reacts to it, that's a move. Hmm. <laughs> Okay. Playing, <laughs> and it's you have you have done the game well, and you're playing the game the way it's supposed to be played. If you can get a visceral reaction from your players, which a hundred percent informs this game is designed for visceral horror, mm -hmm. right? And at, at like those kind of mechanics, I think are are very elegant in helping players get to the place they need to be when they're playing the game. Yeah, another one that's um, not a mechanic a lot of people talk about, weirdly enough, but it's something that shaped my design philosophy is uh, the Men in Black role-playing game. Not a game that gets talked about a lot, but one of the things they have is uh, cue cards, which look a lot like um, quips in They Came From Beneath the Sea. Um, but specifically with, with cue cards, it was if you perform a specific action, the cue card, you get a very specific reward. Um, and it was a really great way to 
encourage you to play characters that look like they would in the Men in Black movies. Right. Okay. Um, so it's like, you know, a uh, 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 back talking alien gets you a certain amount of points. Um, you know, uh, uh, be put into a compromising and gross situation gets you a certain amount of points, as well as saying funny things. Uh, so it, 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 it was something that's a little more beyond just you made the GM laugh, have some points, but you took a specific action that encouraged you to act a certain way in the game and gave you mechanical benefit. It was the most idealized version of that mechanical goal laid bare I had seen before because it's very literally do the thing that this game encouraged you to do and get points for it. Right. Be rewarded immediately for doing the thing we want you to do in this game. Right. It is not certainly a subtle mechanic, but it does the no. job <laughs> in a way that's, that's, that it gets it across. Yeah, I feel like in the vein of... um the men in black game, which you just described, which I was, un didn't know existed. So yeah, I yeah. mean, I'm not surprised, but I didn't know it existed. <laughs> uh, playbooks like powered by the apocalypse playbooks. Um, and yeah. Yeah. by the same token forged in the dark playbooks. Um, if you read I, I, a good playbook design, in my opinion, is if you read it from front to back, like even just skimming over all the options you can take, you fully understand what kind of character it is and how to play it. Uh, and if you are writing something for either of those two systems and your playbook doesn't leave your player fully understanding this is the kind of character it is and this is how they play, then you've fucked up and you start over. <laughs> but like that's that's what I think is a great like mechanics inform experience example. And this is exactly why I haven't dove into the Powered by the Apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no it's... Um, realistically, though, it, it, it's funny that um, that gets brought up a lot because it's for, by all accounts that and fate are very uh, fun, well-designed, uh, cool games that I personally and I recognize 100 percent. This is a problem between my ears. Cannot get my head around for the life of me. Um, That's fair. And and that may be because my, you know. That might be my advancing age. Uh, might be. <laughs> Don't sell yourself short there. <laughs> might be starting. Uh, might, might be starting with games like D and D and, and Palladium, um, but it's just it's very hard to to get that abstract and and be able to still wrap my brain around what is supposed to be happening at the table, um, and that may be also I think. Because some of what we do with game design, it's um, it's about experience, right? So, like, you don't generally, at least in my it, it, people I know, correct me if I'm wrong, people don't generally just read a game book and then um, know what they're doing. There's often, like, you sit no. down with your group and you play that game and you figure out, oh, this rule works this way and so on and so forth. So you learn it by doing, and I've yeah. never had the opportunity to do any of those. I've just read them. And just reading them has not done well for my brains in terms of connecting those. Um, but they sound like when I hear people talk about them, they sound really well thought out. And like you were saying with the playbooks about being like a, a really good definition of like what you're going to sit down and experience at the table. I just can't connect those dots in my head because I don't know how it's supposed to work. So a playbook, imagine if a D&D &D class conversationally told you how to play it and then laid out how you role-played through your feats and the things you took as you leveled up. That's what all playbook is. 
Hey, no, I get that. Yeah. I just don't understand. I just don't understand where it's supposed to plug into an engine. <laughs> like, oh. I, have, I have a really neat, uh, you know, gas pedal. I don't know where it goes. <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's the part that I'm that I'm uh, that I was talking about. And I I think that brings up an interesting point because full disclosure, I also for years struggled with um, Powered by the Apocalypse. I, I relatively recently got my head wrapped around it because I just ran a game. And it, it was because I found uh, a, a pro wrestling Powered by Apocalypse game. It's like, oh, I know how wrestling works. And that helped me to fill in the gaps. And when I ran it, I, I ran it the first time and I ran it completely wrong. And then I ran it again and I got better at it. I mean, uh, was it Worldwide Wrestling? Yes, World Wrestling, which actually is a really good game. Yeah, it's really fun. I've played it. Um, uh, uh, and, and that that helped me understand other Powered by Apocalypse games. Um, that, but I think that leads to an interesting point is a lot of times a game, you don't really understand its nuances until you play it. And as designers, we ideally would like to sit down and play all of our designs and also the designs that we're studying um, and figure out all the nuances of it. But in reality, we have to sit down and try to read the book and deduce um, what the, the gameplay is just trying to accomplish here. Um, yeah. But it's something that I know... Uh, uh, I've talked to a lot of designers about it. It's like, that's one of the reasons why playtesting is so valuable, not just to make sure the rules are working, but also is that nuance of what you're trying to get across on the page getting to the players and is that then landing on the table? Is that, do, you, do you guys find it similar experience for you when you're working on games? Yeah, I definitely will like read a thing and think, okay, this is how it's going to work. And then somebody else, literally anyone else will read it and be like, what? Mm-hmm. And and having that, having somebody else go like, I don't understand what you're trying to say here, because for me, I, I know exactly what I was trying to say. Um, <laughs> and even if I read it out loud, it doesn't help. Like, right. or if I even if even if I'm the one who runs the game, it doesn't help because I am running the game and I am telling people how the rules should work and they're not trying to figure it out on their own. So whenever right. it goes to print and somebody else is trying to run it and players are trying to figure it out, the designer is not sitting there going, oh, well, that's how that works. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think having, um, you know, having other eyes on things and having play tests and all that kind of stuff uh, to, to not to make sure that, you know, if, is there a typo or anything like that, but to make sure, hey, is this actually doing what I want it to do at the table? Right. What does this mm-hmm. game look like at the table now that it's being played? Is it doing what I wanted it to do? I feel like that's such a valuable thing because I can look at other games and see, oh, I think this is what they're going for, right? Mm-hmm. But when I do that myself, I, I don't know if I'm actually landing what I'm going for. <laughs> I'm too close. Um, have any of you guys had an experience where you designed something that seemed really, really obvious and then players come back with something that's just wildly inaccurate to what you intended? Have you ever heard of scale? <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, holy oh. shit. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Uh, this has been the Alex Pathcast. <laughs> um. <sighs> I had something else I was going to say, and I... <laughs> Danielle's scale of her argument trumped yours. Yeah, yeah, I don't... I literally don't remember what happened. The scale joke blanked right, my right, mind. because that came through like a brick. Just like... <laughs> yeah. That was a... That take was nuclear, Danielle. Holy shit. <laughs>
I aim to please. Thank you. There's no I'll only a cell phone. I'll be here all podcast. <laughs> uh, what was the point before then? Something about... Fuck. Oh, oh, right. Okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. It came back to me. Okay. okay. Um, I think it's really smart if you are running a game that you have created or designs that are like mostly yours um, to run it once yourself just to make sure the wheels don't fall off. Um, right. Because like there's some stuff that you will catch as your own as running your own game where you're like, oh, that that didn't work the way I said it was going to um but then the next time or the next couple times you should have someone else run it because you've been living in the monkey house uh and you will not smell that it stinks so like you can't there's like there's a certain forest for the trees you can't you can't get past just because it's your own work um so you have to have someone else do that for you and then provide feedback preferably with you not present so that you Mm -hmm. don't interfere with it at all I understand that that is challenging and you have to find someone to do that, but well, and you also right. don't know what you don't know. Like if there's one thing I could peg is like the biggest challenge that I personally feel like I face as a, as a game designer is I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what somebody who hasn't been playing games for 30 years is going to look at. I can guess. Right. But I don't know that I, I, I can't, swap out my um the language that i've been speaking this whole time and just pretend i don't get it you can't unring those bells um so that is another reason i think why it's vital to have someone who's not you looking your stuff over yeah my my example that that thing was um i gave uh the early draft of pugmire to uh, some friends of mine who we're familiar with role-playing games, but did not had never actually played D&D, which was like, oh my god, really? No, please, play test my game. Um, because I want you to see what assumptions I'm making about assuming everyone understands Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and I got all, a lot of relatively, you know, can you clarify this? We understand that part. That was pushed for it. But the one that really struck me was like, um, so combat seems really easy. And I'm like, that that's not, that shouldn't be working, right? I mean, combat should, shouldn't be, it should be a little challenging. Um, and they're like, yeah, I just we're pretty regularly rolling like forty-five to hit, and I'm like, how are you getting forty-five? You know, and it's like, oh well, because you know we roll, uh, we we roll d twenty, and then we add our modifier, and then we add hit points. Like what? It's like yeah, hit points, hit points. Those are points you need to, to hit things, right? That's why they're called hit points. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> oh, that's. Uh. Oh man! Amazing. Now they're called stamina points. <laughs> yeah, health points. Yeah, interesting. That blows my mind because, like, hit points are a thing that are used in video games all the time. Right. That's right. not yeah. an alien term. Yeah, but it's uh, but the other, and the other thing that's speaking of of, of video games. Um, the other thing I found recently is. Um, um, my roommate ran uh, Pugmire for um, his niece and nephew, and I actually got to play in the game. Um, and so they're like uh, uh, 10 and 12 around that age. Uh, and so they're like, that'd be fun. We'll watch them play. And uh, the questions they asked were really interesting and really insightful. Like, um, uh, how many quests can we can we go on? And do we have to go back to town once we finish it? Which makes perfect sense if you've grown up playing D&D style games primarily through video games. Yeah. Right, you got to run back into town, drop it off with your quest, yeah. you ever go pick up a new quest type of thing, yeah. 
Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's something like, do I need to articulate that in a role-playing game? I, I don't know. Um, but speaking of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um, and this is mostly how it directs Travis, but you know, I'll, I'll take anyone's thoughts on this. Um, it's there's a different challenge between making your own game, kind of either from scratch or from a relatively uh, uh, open base, to trying to design in a base that's extremely established and has a huge community that all have their own thoughts on what the mechanics are and and how they work, um, and even both preconceived notions on what edition looks like and also um weird quirks of structure that most people don't realize unless they actually design in the 5e space um so what is that challenge like to to make something within an existing community of rules such a massive community of rules like 5e um well it's the 5e experience um to me it seems almost um better than it was even when creating under the D20 system. And I think um, I think maybe that might have something to do with just the level at which D&D has uh, pushed forth into the consciousness right now. Mm-hmm. You're not seeing nearly as many like, but we're going to take this other thing and jam it into D&D. Mm-hmm. Um, despite the fact that you could do that uh, just as easily now as you could back then. Um, so I think that... Uh, is good because a lot of the momentum that's happening among designers is people are putting out new things for the OGL or as you if you watch things that are coming out on DMs Guild um, is all sort of momentum that's carrying it in that in a general fantasy direction. Now there's other things that are being um, integrated in, but it's not so much like, we're going to bolt on a bunch of cyberpunk parts and then figure out how to make it work. Right. As you know, now it's more like, Oh, we're going to take this little element of cyberpunk and work it into the existing DNA. The other thing that makes the current space more fun and easier to design in is that five E is just good. Like it's just well put together. Um, it's, it was rigorously play tested. Uh, the mechanics at their core are pretty elegant. Um, yes, there are some things that are a little bit funky when you get into them, especially, um, you know, when you're getting into like higher level class abilities, things like that, top end game stuff. Sure. Um, but in terms of just like smooth and elegant and well-designed to kick in monsters, 5e is that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so, uh, that makes it uh, pretty easy. The thing that I think is the greatest challenge, but also the most fun about designing in that space is so then finding ways to, because you have such a a robust and functional engine running, it's really about going into that lore and figuring out neat little ways to plug in the lore into that or to create little add-ons to meet the lore. Mm -hmm. Um, I, in working on Dead Man's Rust, for example, um, there were some base system conceits that we had to address in order for the plot to function right. So okay. we had to go in and uh, take some of the things because 
Scarred Lands is a world that's not necessarily nice to the people that live there. Right. Um, whereas D&D 5th Edition is a system that is very nice to the people playing it. Right. So there were some things we had to um, kind of work around and, and build in new subsystems to address. But fortunately, because D&D is so elegant, you can add those things in as, an, as a sort of little elegant patch um, without having to like worry that you're going to pull out one block and the whole Jenga tower is going to fall. You know what I mean? Instead of like, let's get rid of this thing. You can instead say, no, we're going to add on a different descriptor or a different, um, you know, qualifier for this particular different condition, uh, whatever it is, you know, that you, that you need to create to reflect that additional difficulty, that additional challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can put that on, very easily and then it works uh within its own it creates its own uh loop because 5e is a system that's designed entirely on exceptions you have the core engine and then everything else is an exception to those rules okay right so if you is depending on how you stack your exceptions is the way it works um so if you add a condition that uh negates x y and z you only have to worry about how that applies while that condition is active to someone. I realize I'm probably being a little bit vaguer than I would like to, but I'm also trying not to like spill too many beans about what specifically we were doing. With, no, that that's with, fair. Uh, Dead man's rest. No, that's fair. Um, uh, and actually that kind of, um, that leads me to my next thought. Um, uh, 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 talk about exalted specifically for a moment, um, because I think exalted is probably the closest thing Onyx Path has to an equivalent system of, it's, it's a system that has a lot of, of depth. Um, it's, it's got its own design assumptions um, and it can be tricky to do well if you don't understand those assumptions. Is that fair to say, Monica? You think? Yes, I was really close. I was waiting for Travis to finish because I was also very interested in, in what he was saying about 5th edition and all that stuff. And I was like, ooh, and you just, you just had me unwrap the tension for a minute, even though I had like something <laughs> planned to interrupt. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, but um, I, I almost was like, I haven't done 5e stuff, but I have done Exalted stuff, um, mm -hmm. which is its own thing. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you are correct that there are certain assumptions. There are a lot of people who really value system mastery, um, mm -hmm. as I'm sure there are in the D&D community. Um, and as a content creator for Exalted in an official capacity, uh, there is some degree of like writing them and going, oh God, there is some fan out there who is going to find a way to use this to ruin someone's game mechanically because they have more system mastery than I do. And there's some interaction that I have not considered right. <laughs> that might make this a problem. And like the, the developers do a very good job of trying to patch all that out. Um, and really nobody knows third edition inside out forwards, backwards around and through better than Vance does. Bless mm -hmm. you Vance. Um, <laughs> but even even with oh, their efforts, <laughs> Sorry. but even with their efforts to to make to try to patch all that out, it's still there's still like a little bit of, ooh, oh no, it might the 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 pin might come loose and everything might explode. Like it still could right. happen. Um, and one of the interesting things that Travis was saying about fifth edition being built on this is the core system and everything else is an exception is mm -hmm. exactly what we did for Essence. Oh, okay. 
um, we, which is something I think Exalted really needs. Um, basically, I there are there, there are a bunch of very hard. <laughs> yes. like, there's a bunch of really fixed rules. Um, you can, in essence, you can only add so many dice. I know you all want me to tell you how many it is, and I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> Somewhere between one and a million. That was that was to the audience, not to the other people on this show. <laughs> There's also fair, a, I, I know the answer. <laughs> I know, and I'm not telling. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll tell you guys later, but I'm not saying it on the air. There's also a hard cap on how many successes you can add. And so anytime I was like, if you want this to, to be the exception to the rule, you have to say so. Um, there also were really hard limits on how many actions you can take. So if you want to have an exception to the rule, you have to say so. Um, and mm. so it's much, much easier to patch out this is the exception to the rule than to try to find the places where the rule falls apart. Right. Yeah. And if you, one of the things that you can wind up with when you're doing a game that's particularly crunchy, particularly simulationist, right. Mm -hmm. um, is like in third edition, the commoner, um, have you ever heard of the, the commoner railgun? No. Um, because of the way that handing an object to somebody works, if you line up like a, a infinite line of commoners, you can throw, you know, they can all hand one another a spear so that at the end of it, you've got this spear that's moved like 10,000 miles an hour. Yeah. Because of, because of a hole in the way the rules function. No. Um, have you, have you, have all of you really never heard of this? <laughs> Not that one, no. <laughs> it does remind me, though, of the old um, Pyramid Magazine uh, Murphy's Rules comics, though. Yes. But yeah, and, and there's a certain amount of that where you have to, you know, um, rely on the people that are, you know, running the game at their table to say, no, that's dumb and you're not going to do it. Um, but having said that, though, if you can avoid it in your design, that's obviously the ideal. And I think doing those systems that are kind of exceptions based is, is one good way of doing that, particularly with the simulationist stuff. You mentioned simulationists um, and, and um, I do want to talk about StoryPath for a minute, but I want to take a brief digression because um, that's part of GNS theory and that's something that I don't know if all of our audience is aware of. Um, uh, so uh, I'll explain, but I'm curious what you guys' thoughts are because it's been, it's been a controversial theory over the years. But GNS theory is um, the idea that games ultimately break down to three rough categories, which is uh, uh, narrativism, where... Um, the meta interaction of the players to propel the story is the most significant action in the game. Uh, simulationism, uh, which is the act, the, the act of simulating an environment it doesn't have to be realistically, but it has to be authentic to the environment, is the most important action in the game. And then gamism, where it, the actual uh, uh, enjoying and manipulating the rules to enjoy the game aspect of it is the most important action of the game. Um, do you guys agree with? GNS theory? Is it bunk? Is it maybe kind of right? Is it completely gospel? What are your thoughts on GNS? Balderdash. Balderdash. <laughs> Balderdash. Uh, I, think, I think it is uh, games in, in, in body all those spaces mm -hmm. and, and to, try to, to try to put a label like that. I mean, you could say, oh, like this one is more simulationist than it is narrativist, but games in all, almost all games, even even games that are purely narratively based, have some simulation in them, or have some gamism in them. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and and so to try to slap labels on them, I feel like personally, uh, it's just a way for it, yes, it is a way to talk about things. So if you're not trying to label a game specifically that way, if you're trying to talk in in like you talked about fluff and uh, crunch as being like adjectives. Mm-hmm. So if you use them as adjectives, I think that's fine. But if you're trying to say like you know, D&D is fully a simulation simulationist game, there will be, you know, thousands of people who will tell you that they don't even play the game that way. Right. So it is, they all, I think all games kind of hold all spaces and it's a way to describe things that are going on, but it's not like a hard and fast coding rule. Yeah, but so you're sliding between the three points rather than firmly on one of the three. Yes, it's a scale. The three-point scale. Scale. Still had five points. Can you explain this to me, Danielle? Speaking of scale, Danielle. Um, uh, 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 Travis and Monica both talked um, really well about what it's like to kind of design inside of uh, an existing, well established system where other players mm-hmm. have system mastery. Um, twice now, actually, you've kind of come into a system that had been largely designed or was pretty close to being designed or had somewhat been designed and kind of taking it across the finish line or taking it in front of an audience which is now seeing a system for the first time does that change how you approach something as a designer you know that's a, that's a hard question like i feel like um you know when when i am the person who understands the rules best uh because i've been in the middle of it and i still find things that i hate um <laughs> <laughs> that I wish I could change. Uh, you know, that's a, like, that's a thing, right? I think, does it change how I approach things? I'm not sure it really does. Um, you know, I, I've definitely learned a lot uh, from those systems and from what other people write down and what other people, um, you know, when they're, when you're pulling something and trying to make something whole cloth, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, that there's the the concept that there are no new original ideas. Like that's, Idea space is full. There's nothing original. You're just iterating right. off of that now. Right. Uh, the cloud server does not compute. Um, <laughs> but when, but you know, to a certain degree, you know, every time you I read a game, I am inspired by it, and I find bits and pieces of it that I'm like, oh, I'm definitely gonna, you know, rename that. Uh, yeah. And I think you know, seeing games that are designed that way, you know. Part of it is, is that I have to think about why is that a good design? Why Mm -hmm. is, you know, why am I adding this to the game? Why did you add this to the game? And how do I make sure that it's doing what you want it to do now that I am in charge of making sure it does what you want it to do? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, sometimes things, you know, if we're using StoryPath as the example, you know, there's some things in StoryPath that I think when we were initially writing it and initially designing it, you know, I can point to complication Mm -hmm. where it's like complication is a fantastic mechanic um, that nobody really realized what the potential of it was or why it was being added to the game Mm -hmm. when we wrote the core books for Trinity and Scion, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody was really thinking about the implication of here is a perfect way to create a soft pass system. We we mm-hmm. knew that's what we were doing. We said right. this is why we're including it. We 100%. But we didn't ever but we didn't like 
carry that ball all the way across the goal line. We just like dropped it at the 50 yard line and we're like, we scored a touchdown. And like that is <laughs> not how that game works. <laughs> uh, and so it leaves, it leaves some stuff to be lacking in the core books. And, you know, I, I often think like, man, if I could go back through and, uh, you know, write in these really detailed examples of how, when to use complications versus increasing difficulty, how to use complications. Here are some example failures of complications. And in general, the rule that if you are running this game, unless it's like something that is already dry, unless the action is something like combat or already going to drive the story forward just by happening, you should really include a complication on practically every role. Mm -hmm. Because that is how you get, like, that is how you get story forward momentum that isn't just on rails, right? That is how you, uh, you know, a guard shows up. Well, how about a, a guard will only show up if you don't buy off this complication, right? right? How about the dogs will only come around the corner if you don't, you know, buy off this complication when you're jumping over the fence? Right. Or you're going to run out of ammo if you buy off the complication. Right. Um, and, and now it's the complication is literally just a, a, a story flip, right? Things may go off without a hitch, but it's only because you're buying off complications. Complications are introducing hitches, which would be your, you know, your seven, your seven to nines on a, on a PBTA game or your, you know, four, you know, three or your four or five on a forged in the dark game. Right, like yeah. there's the you're, you're yes, there's but, something, yeah. yeah. You're you're you do what you want to do, but this other thing comes up, and now you've got to deal with that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, personally, making something harder to where somebody just fails instead of doing what they want to do is really boring. Because I am a person who rolls poorly on dice statistically. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm on the I'm on the back end of the the bell curve. I'm not on the top end. I'm not in the middle. And I'm, I'm you know I'm that statistic outlier. I'm sure a lot of people feel that way as well. Uh, I really I do, uh, but it's it's to the point where like I, I don't know if you've ever played Alternity, which was the uh, the the future game for for D and D like second right. edition bullshit, right? So uh, it it uses an opposite like a one is really good and a twenty is really bad, and I was great at that game. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, for people like me who I don't like random chance telling me that I can't take an action right. uh, because I often means I will just sit around not doing anything and I will feel useless. And, you know, we can say things like, oh, well, you get some kind of compensation for failure and that's great, but I also still feel useless. So having like, oh, this is relatively easy. So you're not going to fail necessarily most of the time. Uh, so you're going to do what you said you were going to do, but you're going to include like fun complications to the story now makes you feel not useless, but like the reason bad shit always happens to the party. And that's a fun role to fill versus the guy who just sits there not doing anything. Absolutely. And actually, uh, uh, speaking of dice, um, leads me to something else I've been thinking over recently. Um, uh, online gaming has been around since bulletin board systems, to be honest, but sure. I mean, they're yeah. getting particularly visible right now. Um, and one thing I've noticed is that as I, I think about design and as I read games, how much 
of the assumption is that the tabletop experience is six people sitting around a table with physical dice in their hands and some of the fun games with fun dice tricks or, or dice reading um, are assuming that you have physical dice to, to, to riff off of. Um, how important to each of you is the physical act of manipulating dice versus just generating a random number in the appropriate systems? Do you, you really want my opinion on physical dice? Because have you seen my D10 full of D10s? I have not, actually. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I will make sure that the D10 full of D10s makes an appearance during Onyx PathCon. Um, yeah, as I yeah, will yeah. be running Essence, so you'll you'll get to see it. But, like, um, truthfully, I don't think that there's anything necessary about rolling physical dice. Like, if you want to use an app, or if you want to use a random number generator, that's fine. I just, there's really nothing wrong with it um but but rolling physical dice is fun as hell <laughs> and they look really cool <laughs> so yeah, absolutely uh like my thoughts on some like i also think there's some tactile enjoyment to using them especially if you're using them in a creative mm -hmm. way like if you have things like um hunger dice from vampire that are supposed to be a different color and they represent certain bad things happening to you mm -hmm. um like that sort of visual aid um, can be really cool and really engaging in a fun, like almost board game type way. Like some of the fun of playing a board game is the cool, colorful pieces and like the rolling of dice and the moving things around, right? The, the physicality yeah, of it. Um, but I also understand that like sometimes physical dice are not accessible. Like maybe you have low vision and you can't read the numbers and you need a mm -hmm. dice app to read the numbers to you. That's fine. Um, or, or any other reason why you would not use a physical product. Um, but I do like them. That's just my opinion. <laughs> so you are team shiny math rock. I am hearing. team shiny math rocks. It's true. I have many of them and I will continue to collect them. <laughs> I was very uh, resistant to putting down my shiny math rocks a couple years ago. <laughs> and then Twitch started to happen in my life. And I became far more uh, reliant on device driven um, gaming which is uh like i get there there is the slight uh absence i guess of the tactile sensation when you're using the dice rollers but mm -hmm. i mean even when you're streaming a game you can use physical dice uh the the real benefits to um having a vtt platform aside from just like having a visual of what your characters are doing which is most of the time nice, sometimes a bit of a pain in the neck, um, is the idea that everybody can sort of see the roles. You can scroll back through the roles and reference them. If you make a mistake, you can go back and say, oh, this was wrong, and we can, you know, I know that I accidentally took four too many hit points from you, um, you know, so we can fix that now. So, mm -hmm. like, those are, those are neat things and fun to explore and uh, something that I hope to... As I look at these VTT platforms and get more familiar with them, I'm always kind of in the back of my brain trying to figure out, so how can we capitalize on this to make for a cool and unique experience that maybe you wouldn't be able to get at an analog table? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, how can we get that extra level of friction that we already have because we have decades of experience doing it around table? How can we start to get that in the VTT space? Yeah, I'm... Um... I'm a fan of physical dice because they're pretty. I'm going to side with Monica on that. I also have 
um, a debilitating addiction to containers, um, boxes, bags, doesn't matter. Like if I see one, I must have it. Um, which means I, I, I might have as many dice holders as I have dice. Uh, each one gets its own velvet carrying case. Um, I find dice containers lying. I'm like, oh, I, I forgot I had this right now. I have this wormwood box with like a set of pretty dice inside of it. And then, you know, that's not my only one. Um, <laughs> and so it's just hanging out on my desk, like, because I play games at my desk sometimes, not with sure. those kind of dice, but there it is. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I like physical dice, but I also, when I'm playing online, will not use them. <laughs> Mm. So, uh, so, you know, like I, I also, I, I'm going to say something really weird that is like, sometimes I think dice don't matter, uh, as long as everybody's having fun. Like, I don't care what like right. random number comes up or how you yeah. generate a number. Like if you just spout out a number, I'll believe you. Um, right. and so, uh, this, you know, leads to every now and then I talk about running a game in which I have everybody just make a character from whatever their favorite game is. Mm -hmm. uh and we'll use your rules for that thing but we're all just going to play in this one game together oh wow <laughs> i, I want to be invited well, to the next one it's, it sounds like it's I, like Calvin Ball, the it. rpg it, it is it's a little <laughs> bit like that yeah but i i because i uh because there's so many like mechanics that are similar and things that work similarly and as long as the game has combat mechanics uh like you can make a character for it and and bring it along and we'll probably do some fights in which you know your pbta character rolls two two dice uh, and then on hit, this happens. On a miss, this happens. And then your D and D character rolls a D twenty uh, <laughs> and does damage this way. And like, I want I want to play in a game like that, but I want to play like a glitter boy from Rifts. <laughs> I was just thinking yeah. of Rifts, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it a live play of Cal Danielle's Calvin Ball. <laughs> yes, in which Travis plays a glitter boy, and I'll play an exalt, and we won't have any problems. Yep. Nope, it'll be fantastic. <laughs> this is going to happen. I'll find my Rollmaster character. Yes, please right. bring it. And we won't have any problems. No. No, none. Uh, so we are getting close to time. Um, uh, so I just have one last question for each of you. Um, I think uh, all of us as designers, um, we... we Ideally, play voraciously, but at least read voraciously. I'm always looking at different kinds of games, you know, what they do and, and how they do it. Um, is there one rule or mechanic or subsystem or even whole game that just constantly sticks in your head as like, this is an amazing design? <sighs> okay, so I'll, I'll go first. Sure. Um, right. Little Fears. Have you ever heard of Little Fears? Oh, yeah. Um particularly the first edition of it because uh, they changed some things up in nightmare edition uh it's in nightmare edition is still good uh very much but i really liked the way that in the original edition um you were facing off against yourself anytime that you had to do a challenge the monsters were effectively you um okay. the things you had to overcome were effectively you uh, mm -hmm. And I really like that mechanically, especially um, sort of because where the mechanics meets the lore, you're you're looking at this world that um, it's a little fuzzy about whether or not this world is real, mm -hmm. 
right? Like the threats are real, but um, your imagination and your level of uh, innocence, I believe was the, the trait that it referred to, mm-hmm. um, how childlike you were still had very real implications on how you interacted with the monsters in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought that the way that all that knitted itself together and was funneled through your own traits being the thing you had to overcome, I always thought was just really brilliant. Um, a really brilliant example of making the lore and, and the crunch work well. It was a, it was a lore s'more. Listen, lore s'more is the goal. <laughs> Lord, <laughs> Lord is, is always the goal. <laughs> uh, how about you, Daniel Monica? Uh, um, <laughs> I okay. So, like, my answer is that I don't know that there's one quintessentially perfect rule, and I really sure. think that you should read everything, um, even mm-hmm. stuff you think you're not gonna like. Like, uh, yep. pick up a PDF; it's cheaper, um, or mm-hmm. borrow a friend's book. Uh, and read through stuff. Um, I also recommend playing in a one or two shot of games, even games you don't think you're going to like, because the best mm-hmm. way to learn that sort of thing is by playing. Uh, and uh-huh. then ste- and then ignoring the parts you don't like and stealing the parts that you do. And that's how you get better and better and better. Um, and you are, if you are a good game designer, just like if you are a good artist or writer, you should be constantly practicing by like engaging in the thing that you do. Um, right. But I will and also stealing say, creatively. And also stealing creatively. Yes. Always, constantly steal creatively. There's a bonus experience episode about that too. Um, but uh, <laughs> but um, I, I will say that I think one of the things that I found really impactful and when I carried it over into other games um, with a caveat um, that really improved everyone's experience is stunting from Exalted. <laughs> Which I yeah. understand. Yep. I understand that stunting, as written in current editions and past, has some problems because at its core, it is basically judging your friends for being creative. Um, but if you simply turn it into some sort of benefit for describing your action in a cool manner, as long as you made any effort at all, it suddenly mm-hmm. becomes the uh, motivation by which everyone jumps up and starts making the game so much more interesting. People stop doing, I hit it with my sword. Well, I guess I'm just going to attack yep. that guy. Uh, and even a little bit of additional effort makes the game so much more lively. Um, mm-hmm. And when you start getting people bouncing back and forth off of each other, like, um, and you can do that, you can literally do this in any game. Like, you could do it in DD 5th edition by saying, anytime yeah. you mm-hmm. describe your action, you get advantage. Like that, it's, yep. it's that simple. Right. Um, and then like you start getting people looking at where they are on the map or where they've described each other. And then they're like, okay, well I'm back to back with you. And so I pull out my two swords and then like enter my berserker rage or whatever. And then like they, you start, people start playing off of each other. And then the GM starts playing off of the other players. And you get this like really incredible experience of like everyone really buying in just by simply introducing the benefit of if you put a little effort forth, you get some mechanical boost. So yeah, that's, that's my thing. I'm going to, I'm going to put that one forward. Sounds good. good. Uh, I'm going to have to agree with Monica that I don't think that there's a quintessential rule or anything that I'm just like, this is the best. This needs to be in every, every game ever. 
Um, but, but there's something that I do keep coming back to. So, and Mm -hmm. that was part of your original question, right? Is there, is there a mechanic that I keep thinking on, or I keep like, well, what if it worked like this? And that is fate aspects. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no clue if fate took aspects concepts from elsewhere and, and presented it in such a way that now everyone talks about fate aspects. Um, but it feels very original to me, so I don't know. <laughs> like, sure. I don't want to a hundred percent attribute it to fate, but um, but I'm pretty like it's where I learned about aspects. It is such an it, it's such a wonderful way to have players tell you the most important thing to their character and allow you to play off of it, even if you don't use it for things like invokes and compels, right? Even if you're just like, I need you to describe something that's important to your character, kind of like a fate aspect. Um, Like Mm -hmm. this, you know, causing the players to think not just about what does their character look like or what does their character, you know, feel like, or, or what is their character, you know, what's their class or, you know, whatever, but instead like what, what will make your character go on a rampage? Mm -hmm. Uh, What, what is a defining aspect of your character that is like so inherent that it becomes an aspect and it's not just a good thing all the time, but it can also get you in trouble sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's evocative. And, and then having everybody have a couple of those, even if it's just like, you know, a, a single line on a, on any character sheet now becomes ways for players to be like, well, remember how you're, you know, you're unab- unabashedly uh, truthful at all times. This is, this is a great moment for that to fuck you. Uh, like, <laughs> right. Like you got to lie to this guy. Can you do it? Um, right. <laughs> and, and I think, I think that that is, oh, you know, like super trustworthy. Everybody trusts you, but this guy, he also, you know, good luck. So I think, I, I think that is my one that like in any iteration of it, you know, that I've seen it, I've seen it in other games or in other places where it's, you know, you not used the way it's used in fate, but those, those really descriptive um, kind of good or bad aspects about a character. And every time I think about them, I'm like, man, that was some sweet design decision. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I remember seeing, an earlier version of that in Over the Edge back in the early 90s, kind of a similar idea where it's like you just mm-hmm. write down four things about your character and those are basically your stats. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That same kind of, oh, I can do anything and, and how that plays into story because this is now an important part of your character. Yeah, I completely agree. That's, that's really, really cool. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, the one that always sticks in my head is, is int- intriguing is from Teenagers from Outer Space by Arthur Sorian. Um where uh, it's a very simple system. Basically, it's one, you have one die six. One to six is your attribute. Um, you occasionally add a couple points for a skill, and you roll d six and add that number to it to be the difficulty number. Um, but if you beat the difficulty number by too much, then your success becomes so incredible that it starts to become a negative problem again. Oh. Uh, um, and it's, it's meant to be a comedic game. Uh, so the idea is that. Failure is funny in a comedy game, so even your success can ultimately become a failure in the right frame. Okay. So, like, you're the good-looking jock, and you try to roll to, you know, uh, uh, try to get a kiss with uh, the head cheerleader, and you roll so well that, like, everyone around you is now suddenly really enamored with you, and they're, like, screaming at you. They've formed these fan clubs. They start ripping your clothes off. You know, it's... 
um, it becomes so successful that it becomes a whole new problem to deal with. Um, and it was a really interesting way of that kind of very early, uh, 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 always pushing the story forward, even in unusually unanticipated directions, um, because it, I'd seen it with failure happening to a degree, but I'd never really seen it with success doing an equivalent component. Wow. So, no, that is really cool. Um, uh, but anyway, so uh, uh, we are out of time. Actually, we're we're long over time, so this is one of our longer uh, roundtables. But this is a ton of fun. Um, we definitely do something like this again sometime. Maybe do a sequel at some point. I'm down. Um, Always. Yeah, anytime. <laughs> happy yes. to happy to come back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the meantime, um, uh, where can people find you online, Danielle? Uh, I have a website, daniellelozon.com. And Monica? I, oh, I'm also on like Twitter and Facebook and stuff. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were just on no. website. That's it. Nothing else. <laughs> Uh, are you good? Anything else? Yes. No, okay. no, I'm good. I'm done. <laughs> All right, fine. But also, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Zenith Sun. Uh, I retweet lots of political things um, and talk about game design sometimes. Uh, you can also listen to my show, Bonus Experience, either at bxpcast.com or at misdirectedmark.com slash bonus experience. Um, and you can follow the show at bonus expcast on Twitter. Travis. I am at Travis Leg pretty much everywhere on the internet. Um, I'm also frequently spotted on the Onyx Path Twitch channel and uh, frequently spotted at the Plastic Age Plays Twitch channel, um, oh. where, I, where I run games and do things that are game adjacent. Um, this is my whole life. Send help. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very pleased. Uh, yeah, those are all the places you can find me. Sweet. Um... Thank you guys so much for, for hanging out and uh, we will go on to the outro. And we're back. Woo! Um, so, so, That's so, the yes, pun um, train coming in at the train. station. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yes, and so for my um, uh, uh, fellow hosts who definitely listened to that episode completely, um, I just want to remind them of the amazing pun that is um, Bisexual Fluff, which was my, ba- my baby metal cover band. Uh, that was a great moments in the interview yes it was my favorite right I thought you uh, that. Uh, the 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 point where um where travis said that thing as well was really good right yes as my, as my ghost that's which i go what the heck is the context for that you just said <laughs> now i will have to listen to it <laughs> Um, but no, it, it was it was um i genuinely enjoyed uh, doing that um, and it's the kind of thing that um it's kind of hard to do a, a like a, a panel about um, because it's a little idiosyncratic, um, but uh, it's also a topic that in you know, 100 episodes we've just never really dug into in depth. So I figured, nah, now's the time to kind of arrange that and get that to happen. So I'm glad we did that. Um, and also, uh, it's been now a couple of weeks since uh, Onyx PathCon, um, uh, and so we're kind of getting caught up on things. Um, uh, Matthew, kind of what kinds of things are you working on at the moment? Ah, uh, so I am currently redlining redlines, which is an interesting Wait, thing. Yes, so <laughs> I am the Cult of the Blood Gods for V5 spawned three stretch goals. Uh, and spawned, yes, <laughs> uh, and I de- I'm developing one of them solo, but I'm co developing the other two. Uh, one with John Burke, one with Clara Herbal, and because they are new developers, I thought, well, let's 
give them actual mentorship. I know it's a novel concept. The right. the idea of uh, of a bit of coaching, a bit of training, and being able to give critical but constructive feedback during the development process. Because I know we have uh, it very rarely ends in disaster, but it is always a bit of a crapshoot if we send a new developer into the wild, as it were, and hope that they do a good job and then only really get to review it at the back end of things. I think it's worse to send it back to them and say, oh, by the way, you missed out this step. Could you redo it? Uh, rather than doing it at an active pace, if you see what I mean. So sure, yeah. John and Clara have concluded their red lines on their two books, and I am now going through their red lines, essentially uh, going hmm and ha and ticking the bits that are good and uh, and pointing out things that they might have missed. I think that's the main thing. It's that, as this is their first stab at redlining, while they have both received plenty of drafts before that have been redlined, there may not be things they are looking for as developers. Uh, so whether it's something like passive voice, whether it's something from a setting perspective, and in fact, I would say that uh, that setting perspective is probably the the thing that stands out the most, not as a criticism to either of them, but I, I see the same thing with Mage the Ascension quite often. Because Vampire is such a heavy-duty setting, and I've been entangled in it for quite a while now, just as you were, Eddie, before mm-hmm. me. Uh, you forget how dense it is when a new developer has to come on board and how easy it is to make an assumption about a character or about an event uh, as writers and for developers to look at it and think, that looks cool, I'll keep that in. But you, the sort of over-developer, mm-hmm. see it and think, oh no, that doesn't work because it connects to this and this and this. Or because this book released in 1998 nullifies what they've just said. So... That's a that's an interesting quandary that I'm not sure what the best route is to, to handle it long term. But those are the kinds of things I'm picking up now. But anyway, that's what I'm working on. Yeah, that, that, I could see why that would be tricky. And it's definitely, uh, I'm sure they appreciate having someone like you looking over their work and, and offering your advice and suggestions because you have a different perspective on it. That better do. <laughs> How about you, Dottie? <laughs> I don't even know. How's the coming right along? It's coming along. I've been redlining. Um, I mean, we're going to get it back into seconds and also do some play tests, uh, some longer running play tests than the ones that we did over the weekend. Um, if you want to watch an Exalted Essence play test, then over on XPathCon Virtual Con Weekend, we did a couple of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are also available on Twitch and probably YouTube soon if they're not already. Uh, so those, those are cool. Uh, Monica Specker ran a game for a few of us, including Rich Thomas, which was fun. Um, and then Neil decided to change his Exalted game on Sunday morning to an Essence game, kind of last minute. Nice. Uh, but it it went off really well, and they both showcased very different parts of the system, which I thought was cool, and different Exalt types. We made sure to do different Exalt types for both of them. Uh, so that, it's coming along. It's just uh, trying to make everything cohesive, and then we need to get it, like I said, through some playtesting to make sure that everything works the way it's supposed to and is intuitive. But it sounds like um, the the when you play this for the first couple of times at Honest PatCon, I was hearing a lot of, it seems like it, the core of it's generally working really solidly and now you're kind of just looking at tweaking and modifying and adjusting things. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the fact that we were able to run two successful playtests off of first draft material is super cool. Yeah. Because uh, that's, I mean, 
it it had been tweaked by Monica. Like two of my uh, charms for this idea that I played, uh, I, I posted the the charm text in my little sheet that I made, and then I also like copied and pasted Monica's note <laughs> where she had said like, okay, this is cool, but maybe we should do it this way uh, so that we could kind of choose during play which which way to go with things. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, M- Monica's just got a great head for mechanics um, and so do all the writers on that book who are working on the charms. And I'm really, really pleased with how they've come out, especially since we, you know, tasked them with making charms that were easy to understand and that weren't super long for the most part, but that still felt like an exalted charm. Mm-hmm. Like you were doing something just huge and heroic with it. Right. Uh, and that was really, really cool because they managed to hit it. And I am, I, I could not be happier with how all the charms came out and how all the splat write-ups came out. And yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very, very cool. That's, that's fantastic to hear. Uh, and as for me, um, uh, since we announced it at uh, OPPCon, um, uh, I have started, well, we're, we're actually already in the middle of first drafts for Squeaks in the Deep, which is the new uh, Realms of Pugmire uh, book. And it's also fun to say, I've discovered, after saying it a few times now, Squeaks in the Deep. Squeaks in the Deep. Um, <laughs> Thread King. Thread King. King, King, King. You have to have the echo now because they're in the deep. Squeaks in the deep, 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 deep. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the, the team uh, has been really uh, having a lot of fun talking things through. We had a, a meeting right before uh, the convention, um, and everyone's on the same page and excited, which is which is fantastic. I always love that with with the Pugmire books, especially people seem to really uh, enjoy the process. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, um, right now everyone's kind of heads down and, and and prepping for it. But we've had some initial discussions, and I think it's going to be really really cool. Um, so I'm excited to see what comes out of that. Uh, so because uh, this episode was a bit uh, longer than usual, we'll go ahead and wrap up early. Um, uh, Matthew, where can people find you online if they want to talk to you? Oh, they can find me on MatthewDawkins.com and on Twitter as ClackClickBang. And I always advocate they check us out on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash the Onyx Path. And Dixie? You can find me in most places at Dixie Cyanide. Find me at DixieCochran.com um, or I can hang out in one of the discords that I'm in where I'm usually Dixie Cyanide because I am boring and have one handle. No, it's it's a cohesive brand management strategy. It's not boring. <laughs> um, and you can find me uh, at Pugstay.com and from there you can, get, you can find access to all of my uh, public uh, social media accounts. Um, and you can find all of us uh, usually on Twitter, um, also, uh, through theomicspath.com, as Dixie mentioned, we have uh, discords, um, we're occasionally on the forums. So generally, as long as you're somewhere in the Onyx Path space, odds are pretty good we'll see um, what, what you have, if you have a question for us. Uh, so with that, many worlds, one pathcast. <laughs> <laughs>